Welcome to the podcast, Bringing Truth to Life, where we talk about what the scriptures say that can help you get unstuck from the thorny issues of life and encourage you to live the life you've been wanting to live with Christ. Our speaker today is Henry Clay. We are in a series called Best Friends Forever, looking at the principles that move you to a deeper level of oneness and joy with your spouse. May this be helpful to you, and may it also give you truth to share with those you seek to encourage. Lord, we do thank you for the chance to be together tonight. We bow before you. We consider it a privilege to get together and open the Bible and see what it has to say about our lives and how you want us to think, how you want us to get to know you better, how you want us to please you and live successful lives. Bless us tonight. Open our hearts, Lord. Open the ears of our hearts to hear whatever the Holy Spirit would want to say to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our title is The Land of the Giants. You know, everyone faces problems in their marriage. It's never quite as easy and rosy as uh, the movies said it was going to be and as the fairy tales said it would be. And it's not just the difficulties that you have to face as a couple that, you know, hard times can come and you can be kind of attacked in different ways. But some of the hardest things you face are the things that happen between the, between the two of you. It might be differences of opinion, differences of preferences. It might be things related, differences as far as your opinions on the children, on money, on what's fun, as far as church, what church to go to, what ministry in the church to be involved in, should we be in the same ministry, is it okay to be in different ministries, etc., Ways, there are also differences as far as, um, uh, or, or difficulties that in terms of way, the ways you let each other down. You, know, you disappoint each other. There are irritating habits. There are bad attitudes. There's childish behavior. And these are the things that happen within the marriage. And that produces a lot of pain and, and disappointment. And over time, uh, you try to deal with these, but they don't necessarily get any better. Sometimes they get worse. And you're tempted to lose hope for your marriage. So we want to take a look at this story tonight to see how it can give us some perspective on some ideas and truths that can help us as, as believers as we follow through with our covenant of marriage. We're, we found out last month that we're stuck, you know. We made this binding covenant, and only death can get us out of it. So unless you're feeling suicidal or, or, or uh, homicidal, um, <laughs> then we've got to make the best of this. <laughs> So let's look at Numbers uh, 13 and 14. To bring you up to date before Numbers 13, in Exodus, at the beginning of Exodus, the children of Israel have been living in Egypt for 400 years. They've become very numerous. They end up being about 2 million people. And in the middle of ex- the book of Exodus, they, after the 10 plagues, they cross the Red Sea, a great miracle there, and they work their way down to Sinai, Mount Sinai, Gebel Musa down here on the southern Sinai Peninsula, receive the Ten Commandments. And then at the end of about two years after coming out of Egypt, they end up here at a place called Kadesh Barnea, which is right at the south of Palestine. That's the bottom part of the Dead Sea up there. Beersheba is one of the southern cities of Israel. And that brings us up to what um, uh, Numbers 13, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send out for yourself, uh, send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan. So this was God's idea. 
He says, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. That's why they called it the promised land, because God says, I am going to give it to you. That's God made a promise. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. So these weren't just anybody that volunteered or some haphazard sort of a thing or even casting lots. They, they chose people that were supposed to be leaders and were, were leaders and were supposed to be responsible. This is their job assignment. He said, I want you to go up there and see what the land is like, whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. And how is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? How are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? And how is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. So what is it the spies are supposed to do? They're just supposed to get the facts, right? They, he doesn't say, come back and give us your opinion about, is this a, a feasibility study? You know, do you count how many we've got, how many they've got? You look at what kind of weapons they've got. You know, they have M16s and we still with carbines or what. He says, no, just see. Uh, what, what is the situation like? So these 12 spies, why 12? One from each tribe. And, and it says that they, they go for 40 days. And they go from down here southern Palestine, Kadesh Barnea, all the way up. And they go all the way up. See, here's Tyre and Sidon. That's in current day uh, Lebanon, actually. So they go really the full length of Palestine and Lebanon. And I got kind of curious, how far is that? So I did a, I did a, a study on it. And that's the distance from Columbia to Atlanta and back. So, but since they were on foot and there weren't anybody to pick them up as they hitchhiked, uh, it took them 40 days. So then they come back, and we've got uh, the, the results of that. And so this tells us about Israel's catastrophe at Kadesh. And the first thing that they, we, we get here is they, they begin to give the report about the promised land. And we see that there are, there's good news and bad news. There's grapes and Goliaths. It says that the spies told them, we went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey. By the way, why would... Why would they say that? Does that sound like a place you'd want to go? What do you think would be a reason why you'd say that would be a really good real estate? Well, what is, okay. What do you have to have to have milk? Yeah, cows and goats. And for a cow and a goat to give milk, there's got to be grass to eat. For there to be grass, there's got to be rain. So it's sort of like... The ideal situation, if, if you get all the way to where you've actually got milk, that means you've got animals, that means you've got grass, that means you've got rain, that means you've got everything. And then honey is kind of an added bonus because honey, you don't have to have that to live. But that makes life really nice because there was no sugar, there were no sweets, there were no candy, there were no honey buns. There was The, the only thing sweet apart from uh, apples and grapes was honey. And you couldn't find that just anywhere. You, there's no honey in the desert. There's only honey where there are bees, where there are flowers, where there's rain, where there's vegetation. So all of that, Matt, uh, as far as an uh, agricultural society, that's as good as it gets. If you've got abundant milk and honey, you've got everything else that you need as well. So he says, well, that's the good news. But the bad news is, says, nevertheless, they say, uh, the people who live in the land are strong. The cities are fortified, very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak here. You can see this, bam, bam, bam. 
Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittite. These are all names probably that they were familiar with. So as, as they would say, well, there's this and here and this guy there. They're thinking, oh, yeah, we've heard about them. They're living in the hill country. The Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Now look at the places they say. The land of the Negev was down in the south. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites, that's living in the hill country. That was that whole, uh, uh, the central part of the land. And then the Canaanites are by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. So that the whole land is covered. Then it says, Caleb quieted the people for Moses. Apparently, you see, the spies had spoken, and apparently the people were all starting to murmur and say, hey, well, wait a minute, you know, well, I've, this wasn't the report we were expecting, etc. Caleb quieted the people. We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So you've got two votes, a split vote here. Caleb and Joshua, turns out, are the two that are positive, and that leaves ten that are negative. So the two that are positive are saying, uh, we can do this, and the ten that are negative says, we're not able to do this. So then the final thing, and I want you to notice a couple of details on this. It says they gave, the, the, the ten spies gave out a bad report of the land, saying, the land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. Now, how were they supposed to, how, how could they have known that? Everybody's doing fine there. Who, do, who has it devoured? And how would they know if it had devoured anybody? Uh, it might devour uh, new people that come in, but uh, so they, you know, when you start to get a negative attitude, you start to see everything worse than it actually is. It says, all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. I mean, all of them? There weren't any short guys in there? Surely, you know. <laughs> then they say, there also we saw the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Did they go around interviewing these guys? How do you see me? Do you sort of see me as a grasshopper or a bulldog, you know? <laughs> so they have totally gone to, to a place that, where they're not reporting the facts, and they're also, the facts that they are reporting, they're reporting them in an exaggeratedly negative way because they've already decided that it's not a good idea. Okay, then we see the response of the people, the prodigal people. It says in chapter 14, 1, Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. So you can tell which ones they believed of the spies. They went with the majority report. You've just got Moses and Aaron, and these two guys, and then ten spies and two million people, and everybody's thinking, you know, this is, it's a lost cause. And you see the praiseworthy pair of Joshua and Caleb, their faith and fearlessness. And this is what they say. The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. So they, they re repeat, you know, what they had seen that was good. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear. I don't know if you noticed it, but back with what the uh, spy said in, um, in the previous chapter, in chapter 13, 32, uh, and, and also the other, both parts of their report, not once do they mention God. 
But then you get down to Joshua and Caleb's report, and four times it mentions the Lord. He will do it. Don't rebel against the Lord. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And that's, that's what makes the difference for them and their ability to decide it's best to move forward. So why don't we examine a little bit here, try to get an idea of what really happened. When you think about, they'd, they'd already seen God do a lot of things. I've always found it interesting, God doesn't expect you to trust him with no evidence. God has, that's what the whole, one of the reasons for having the scripture, is that God wants you to see that he's trustworthy. Sometimes you'll have a person in your life that wants you to trust them even though they've not been trustworthy. They've, uh, every time you've trusted them, they, they deceived you, they let you down, whatever, but they want to be able to say, well, I'm sorry, and now from now on I want you to trust me. Not even God asks you to do that. God, all the way through the scriptures, showing you, you can trust me because he says, look back and see what I've done. I've done this and this and this and this and this, and that's why you should continue to trust me. So by this point, they had already seen God do the ten plagues, get them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, destroy the armies of, of Pharaoh, and rain down manna from heaven, bring in quail, speak to them on the mountain, give them the Ten Commandments twice. They had a, a lot more than most people will ever get in their whole life of actually visibly seeing that God is real. And so their collapse of faith here is... God took all that into account. It was much more serious. Now you think about, they've come to this place, all they know is they're going to this land flowing with milk and honey that God has promised, and it sounds great. They get to this point, and now is the first time they get more information on it. And you think, well, what was their problem? Was their problem really the people in the land? Was, it, was their problem the giants? Was their problem really the walled cities? The Bible makes very clear their problem was just one thing. It was sinful unbelief. The issue of trusting God is one of the most important things, issues, that you'll ever have in your whole life. You think, well, but how important is trusting God? In their case, because they refused to trust God, a whole generation died in the wilderness. And we'll, we'll see in a minute uh, a little bit more about that, but obviously for God it was a huge issue. It struck me one time thinking, you know, God was not in that big of a hurry to get them in the land. Because if they weren't going to be any more believing than the people that were already in the land, what had he gained? He wanted to take believers into the land, not just bodies. And God really is trying to make believers out of us, not just people that call themselves Christians and go to a particular church building on, on Sundays, but people that when they face difficult situations, respond in a certain kind of a way. Probably, if you'd have asked them before that spies came back, are you trusting in God to take you into the promised land? They said, well, sure, yeah, look at all he's done. But their faith, in quotes, evaporated as soon as they saw any problems. And a lot of people are like that. They have plenty of faith until there's a difficulty. And many people are willing to trust God as long as everything looks easy. So how do you know if you're trusting God or not? What are, what are some of the symptoms that we can discover in this passage that show us what are the, uh, the indications, the characteristics uh, that show you 
whether or not you're sliding into sinful unbelief. The first thing we see with them is it says they cried all night. And that would be uh, self-pity. One of the symptoms of sinful unbelief is just that you feel sorry for yourself. One of the things that's helped me deal with self-pity is, is to remember, remind myself from time to time that all I really deserved today was to be in hell for my sins. So I'm doing fine, thank you. <laughs> not only am I not dead, I'm also not in hell. And, and, uh, so it's really not that bad. It's okay. But self-pity can get you into an awful lot of trouble because it gets you thinking, well, if, if, if that's the way it's going to be and this and that and the other, and you just, you just start to entertain thoughts that you wouldn't have entertained otherwise. A second symptom of unbelief is complaining which points to discontentment. And in verse 2, they say, I wish we could have died in Egypt, or it would have been better if we had died in this wilderness. So they're, they're complaining, oh, poor us, this is a terrible situation. How, how did you let this happen? Uh, anything would have been better than this. Third symptom of unbelief is the refusal to move ahead. In uh, chapter 14, verse 3, they say the people say they're going to kill us and they're going to enslave our wives and children. Now, they haven't even had a battle yet. This would be like the football team in mid-August saying, we're going to get creamed. They're, they're going to bust our knees. They're going to win all the games. I mean, you know, that's not the kind of a team you'd want to go into the, the football season with, is it? Panic is where you already assume the worst-case scenario. Our poor children, what's going to become of them? What, you, know, you just don't you view the future without trusting in God's grace and provision and intervention and response to you, as though there were no God. A fourth one is the rejection of leadership having a rebellious attitude. And they say in verse 4, let's get us a real leader. So let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Oh, that's a great plan. Point one, they already have a leader, Moses. And, but one of the things that's symptoms of unbelief is that you can't trust God with the leadership he's given you. If that's the, the wife trusting her husband, if that's the kids trusting their parents' decision, uh, if you're involved in a church ministry and the leaders God's given you in that church for that period of time. But rebellion is, a, is also a symptom of, of unbelief. And finally, they wanted to stone Joshua and Caleb, it says in uh, 14 verse 10. And this is, just points to hostility. When you are not trusting in God, uh, you start making more cutting remarks, you're harder to get along with, you're irritable, feisty. Uh, and that, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are other reasons why that could be that way, but, but it, it can also be a symptom of unbelief. Uh, so the situation that they're in and the symptoms that we see of unbelief, most people would, if you ask them, are you trusting in God? Well, so, well they say, well, Sure. That's why it's helpful to have an idea of well, what does unbelief look like? And then you say, well, do you ever feel sorry for yourself? Oh, well, yeah. 
How about any complaining? Yeah. Panic? Yes. Rebellion? Maybe. Hostility? Sometimes. Uh, well, you've just described unbelief, sinful unbelief. And again, we don't attach a lot of emotional weight to the sin of unbelief. If someone came in and says, oh, I have a confession to make today. Yesterday, I committed the sin of unbelief. They'd say, is that all? You know, <laughs> all right, <laughs> forgot to feed the dog and I committed sinful unbelief. You know, it's not like adultery, pornography, theft, uh, something like that. But to realize that for God, it's one of the most serious sins in the whole Bible. Because that, from that spring all kind of other sins. And the issue of whether or not we really trust God is one of the foundations for our personal life and for our family and uh, for our marriage. Let's look at what came about as a result of this, the sequels of their unbelief. The first thing that happens in the story is they're paralyzed. They say, we, we can't do it. Uh, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we died in this wilderness. So what happens after this situation? After chapter 14... Uh, do they end up going into the land? What happens? They wander for how long? 38 more years. It ends up being a total of 40 years because it had already been two. So it ends up being another 38 years. And God says, you're going to die in this wilderness. How did he come up with that idea? Read what it says in verse 2 here. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness? What they're saying is, I wish we could have died in the wilderness. And so when God says later on in chapter 14, you're going to die in the wilderness, he, he says, as you said. And so in, in one sense, dying in the wilderness was an answer to their prayer of unbelief. And there's sometimes there are things that you and I say that we're not thinking it's a prayer, you know, but we're just mad. Well, you know, I wish I'd never married you, or wish this, or wish that, or wish we'd never come here, wish this or that. And it, I remember the very first time I ever saw that in the Bible, I thought, better be careful, you're astray comments, you know. They say, would that we had died in the wilderness. And God says, okay, I'll answer that prayer, you will. Uh, so it wasn't as though God, someone last week was saying, well, isn't God being mean? He says, well, it turns out he's just, he's just giving them what they said they wanted. So the, the first thing is just that they're paralyzed. And uh, unbelief can just get you in a place where you're just stuck. And the second thing, a sequel of their unbelief, was presumption. Which, as they get up the next morning, after God says, well, you'll die in the wilderness, so now they're thinking about that option. They think, well, we don't like that either. Uh, so they, it says in the morning, they rose up early, went up the, the, to the ridge of the hill country, saying, here we are. We have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised. And this is this is really ends up being the sin of presumption because God's already made the decision. Moses tells them, "Don't do it. God's not with you now. You don't you don't have that advantage anymore." And they're trying to just do it with uh, being positive. So in the first case, in paralysis, they're being overly negative. It's all over before it's even started. We don't need God. What we need is everything to look easy, so we need to give up. But with presumption, they're being overly optimistic in a, in a human sense. It's not faith. It's just, I have confidence in confidence alone, as uh, in the Sound of Music song. 
we don't need God, we just need to keep a positive attitude. We just need to go for it. And there's a lot of stuff in the world that, that's uh, just kind of pump up a positive attitude, but it also leaves out God. And both of these are sequels of unbelief, and both have no good results. And then the triumph of faith we see with Caleb and Joshua in the book of Joshua, where they eventually, 40 years later, it's just Caleb and Joshua standing. And in Joshua 15, let me just read you these two verses. Joshua 15, now this is 40 years later, it says, uh, Joshua gave to Caleb, according to the command of the Lord, the city of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, and Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai, Ahiman, Talmai, the, the children of Anak, the very three giants that were named back in the report as the coup de grace. This is the, you don't know how bad the land is. These three guys live there in Hebron. And here, 40 years later, he's now 80 years old. In just one little verse, it says, oh, by the way, he took his boys up there. They killed the three giants that everybody was so afraid, the two million people were afraid of. You know, these ten Jews went up there and just went ahead and took it over in one verse. So we see their eventual triumph of faith. So when you think about your own life and apply this to your marriage, thinking about what are your, your giants, it could be a lot of different things and probably been different things over, over the years. For some people, it's, well, maybe I'll start off with what, what some of our giants have been and then kind of go more general from that. As far as in our own lives, from the outside, we've had pressures. Uh, we've been, ever since Wendy's known me, poor thing, uh, she's, we've been trusting God for our support, and, and that, that has its issues. Uh, if any month nobody sends anything in, we don't have any support. So that's a month-to-month issue, and learning to, learning to trust God together for any special needs that come up when, our, when, the, when the roof leaks or... Uh, special needs happen with the children, and God has been very faithful, but that's a pressure. We've had issues with extended family, like everybody does. My side of the family tends to be very straightforward and blunt, and uh, that's often uh, fallen heavily on, on Wendy and, and trying to figure out how to protect her and help that be as manageable as possible. We've had health issues with Wendy's first pregnancy. Our first child uh, died in about the fifth month. And then when she got pregnant again with Walt, she started to bleed in the second month. And we once again faced, you know, will we lose this child? And she was put to bed for six months. So those were, were pressures and giants that we faced. And then from inside, but between us, we've had issues between as far as work and family, how to balance that, particularly when the kids were little in Argentina. And it was so much work, and I was under pressure to do enough to feel like I was doing the ministry and trying to figure that out. We've had vacation issues about what's really fun and what's really vacation, and I'm a boring, uninteresting kind of a guy as far as fun goes. And uh, she's convinced I'm a workaholic, and she's probably right. And we've also had intimacy differences in terms of our physical relationship, which that'll be a different topic another time. But that's been ongoing, you know, through our whole married life, just differences of opinion, preferences, uh, desires, needs, and 
We've had lots of times that have been great, and we've had a, a number of times that have been very, very hard, very discouraging, and we've had to cry and work through it. So we've, we've faced uh, these giants. I wonder, I don't know what your giants are, but some people have a giant of shame. There are things that they did in their life before they met or in their dating years that they justified at the time, but now uh, more and more can't, can't get away from the feeling that they did what they shouldn't do, touched what they shouldn't have touched, gone where they shouldn't have gone. And, and there's just sort of a burden of, of shame there, a giant to deal with there. There might be uh, financial issues that are a giant, of just how you're going to make ends meet, uh, loss of a job, trying to figure out what the kid's schooling and the finances of that, and just differences of opinion about where how the money should be spent. You know, there may be, when when, uh, when the budget's tight, it can't be spent on everything, and so some things, the Democrats or the Republicans, who's going to get what which thing they want in the marriage? So there are the differences in physical intimacy, and uh, very often the, it touches you so much more deeply than just the the plumbing aspects of physical intimacy. There's there's emotional aspects of how do you feel loved, and what to you is is romantic and tender and and self-controlled and pure and holy and trying to sort that out between the two of you, uh, particularly if, they're, if you still have little kids at home. Some people have to deal with a giant of, of a marital infidelity. It, it may not be a full-blown infidelity. It might just be an emotional attachment. We've gone through that a couple of times, and uh, it's, it's kind of scary to, to realize that one of you can just begin to get sort of attached to somebody else, even if it doesn't go beyond talking, but uh, you realize your heart is deceitful, and you've got to deal with it and, and, and face the fact that what the world teaches about you finding that one magic person and everything is perfect after that, it's just not necessarily that way, that you always have to guard your heart because from it flow the issues of life. And uh, we're, all, we're all vulnerable. And that's why we all have to set a guard over our heart. Your giants may be issues with your children or issues with your extended family. It may be spiritual differences. One of you maybe feels a call to the ministry or something, and, uh, or one wants to be more involved in church. One is tired of church. You may f feel like you have different dreams or different calling, and one is perfectly happy to do this, and the other really feels like, well, you really ought to go off that way. And one of the things about facing giants is these, a lot of these things, unfortunately, they're not, they're not resolved easily. Sometimes they may go on for years. And you've read books, you've tried this, you've tried that. And it's tempting to, to think, I don't know if there is a solution. And to begin to think like the ten spies, we, there's no hope. It's, not just, it's just not going to work. Chuck Swindoll, I don't know if I've got the quote in here said, we all face a series of great opportunities brilliantly disguised as impossible situations. Don't you see how that captures that attitude of faith? That as you look at those difficult situations, to see them with different eyes, to see them with the eyes of faith. We all face a series of great opportunities brilliantly disguised as impossible situations. So how about you tonight? Is this a good period for you and your marriage? How are, how are you all doing tonight?
What giants are you facing? Remember, I want you to, to, one of the main things I want you to take away from tonight is that the, that the biggest problem that we face isn't the problem itself. It's whether or not we're going to learn to trust God. With everything that they, that spies brought back in their report, God knew every every detail of the report. God could have told, given them the report before the, without sending out the spies. He says, no, I want them to go out and look and see what's actually there. I know what they're going to see. And when they came back and gave the report, God wasn't saying, oh, really, all those people in the land? I thought I got them out of there. Uh, Gabriel, uh, <laughs> what are the giants still doing there? God knew all that was there, he had left that there, and so when they came back and reported all that, he wasn't looking at the giants. He was lo- watching them. And he just had one question in his mind. Are they going to trust me? They've seen enough so that they should trust me, but will they? Or will they decide, no, we, unless it looks easy, we're not going to trust it. And because of that, it meant they would never enter the promised land. Now, usually in a, in a marriage, one of you this is easier for you than the other person in your marriage. Maybe, maybe one of you feels like you're more realistic. I don't know. I mean, sometimes one person may seem to be the person of faith, but it's, it's a personality thing, and it, maybe they're just more irresponsible. <laughs> and it's the responsible person that seems like they're the ones not trusting God, but they're, they're the ones that actually do look at reality. So it's not, you know, uh, we're not talking about a personality difference. But there may be a spiritual difference in, in, your, in the way you're set up as a, as a couple. And if you're the one that it's harder to tr- for you to trust God, you need to, you need to lean on your partner's faith and not get angry at it. And if you're the one with more faith, you need to exercise that faith. You need to have faith for both of you at times. Maybe you're doing okay now, but you will probably come into a time in the future of greater trial. As hard as it's been, it may get harder. And you'll face another set of giants. There are families that face uh, their house burning down or a crime. or all, There are all kinds of things that, that the Lord already knows is in his plan, that he's going to work for good. Uh, no one's in panicking in heaven as they look at your future. Think, oh, no, if they had any idea what's coming in two years, this is no. God says, no, I've got everything under control. I've planned out all the grace that they'll need. And I'm planning on bringing great glory to my name if they'll just trust me. But if they don't trust me, yep, the ship's going to sink. So what's the key? Will you look at the giants and believe that God is big enough to carry out his perfect will if you just trust and obey him? Remember, when the giant comes, or the giant you're facing right now, God isn't looking at the giant. He's looking at you, and he just has one question in his mind. Will you ever learn to trust me? He's big enough to do wonderful things through the most seemingly horrible circumstances and situations. And it's his plan. He's the one that allowed the two of you to come together. And as we talked about in the covenant, you know, people say, well, when we got married... We didn't really seek the Lord, so we can split and try to find somebody else because it's not the Lord's will. No, once you've made that promise before God, it is the Lord's will. And God sovereignly allowed the two of you to fall in love, whether it was before or after you became Christians. And he wants you to trust that this 
horribly difficult puzzle that your marriage seems to be on certain areas, that that is a divinely allowed set of circumstances where he wants you to trust him to do wonderful things. But you're the one that has to provide that peace. Well, why don't we go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you that you've given us a great story that can remind us because we faced some pretty difficult things. Some are going through some big things right now. And all of us will go through some more big things, all within your perfect will, allowed by you, some even designed by you, for the exact things that you want to accomplish in and through our lives. We're so sorry, Lord, that we give in to self-pity so often, that we run around in panic, that we give in to complaining, that we get hostile, rebellious. Please forgive us, Lord, for taking the sin of unbelief so lightly. Teach us, Lord, in these situations to encourage one another that God is with us. God is going to work things out. We're going to trust in the Lord. I pray for each husband here. They would take that spiritual leadership as they face giants, as giants are identified in their marriage and their family, that the husband would take the initiative and say, sweetheart, let's pray about this. Let's give it to God. God is big enough to do wonderful things if we trust in him. Give us words of faith. Give us eyes of faith, Lord, so that we can move ahead no matter what confronts us. Trusting in you, you've brought us together in this covenant of marriage. Now help us to walk, uh, walk through it in faith, knowing that you're bigger than any giant we face. In Jesus' name, amen. for joining us on Bringing Truth to Life. If the message has encouraged you, please subscribe and give us a review. This helps more people find our podcast. We hope you'll join us again for the next podcast of Bringing Truth to Life.